listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're bringing you a conversation with Jeff Diffenbach. Jeff is the Associate Director of the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative, which raises funds to perform new research in the area of learning effectiveness. Jeff and his team work to better understand learning and education, and then use that knowledge to better enable learners around the world to reach their fullest potential. Let's listen in as Tom and Jeff discuss the work at the MIT ILI Center, how they conduct literacy assessments, what Jeff and his team have learned about how learners grow and develop, and how they can help improve children's education. Jeff Diffenbach, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Jeff, where'd where'd you go to high school? I went to a public school in Wilmington, Delaware called Brandywine High School. We were the Bulldogs, and I guess still are. Um, Is that where you got hooked on sailing? Almost. I went to University of Delaware uh, following my high school career, and it was in college that I really got uh, got hooked on sailing. What was that about? So a friend and I signed up basically to a bulletin board ad. A local couple had a boat down on the Chesapeake Bay, and they were looking for people who didn't have any experience sailing that they could teach. And ideally, they'd be engineering students because they figured that they'd be able to learn. And my friend Doug and I hopped into it and just instantly loved the the rush of sailing when everything's going crazy and the calmness when everything's nice and serene. You ever get a chance to go out on the Charles River? Any sailing uh, these days? I do. In fact, when I was in grad school at MIT, I worked at the sailing pavilion there and every summer make sure I get out at least a few evenings and weekends. Uh, Jeff, you you were a double E in uh, college and uh, then went to MIT. How'd you get to MIT? So I did a summer program between my junior and senior year of college uh, through a group called the Materials Processing Center and met Gus Witt, uh, no longer with us, but at the time faculty in material science and engineering and worked for him that summer. And then when I applied to come for grad school, uh, I suspect having worked for him helped a lot in my acceptance and coming to work for him. You had an interesting combination of topics that you studied when you were at MIT, material science and, and tech policy. Why, why that combination? So in my first semester as a grad student, I went to three parties celebrating a student's 10th year at the Institute. And I didn't want to be on a PhD track that might take me 10 years. Through a friend who was in the technology and policy program, I connected up with a faculty member there who allowed me to transition into his lab, and uh, it ended up just being a great fit. It was a two-year master's program. I ended up getting a double master's by virtue of my first semester course load, but ultimately just a much better fit than being a a pure scientist or or pure engineer in the lab. You've had an extensive career in in education and in ed tech. Uh, and a lot of that has been in uh, business development. So how how did you go from those hard engineering sciences to the the people business of, of organizational and biz dev? I just seem to have a natural aptitude for the selling of relatively complex things. My first stint in that was in a small management consulting firm where every relationship with a prospective client was different. The challenges they were facing were different. And it seemed to be something that I was good at. In the end, I think it's 
something I can do, but not something I'm passionate about. Uh, the, the fit that ended up being the best of the various roles I had was in product management, in essence, sort of the, the general manager of a product or suite of products. It had some sales aspects to it, but it also had a lot of marketing, a lot of designing products. And, and it, that's, that was probably the best fit for me of the various corporate roles I had. And today you're at the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative. What's the mission of the center there? Yeah, so we do three things. Uh, first, we raise funds to perform new research in the area of learning effectiveness. And, and more and more, we have to say human learning effectiveness. We're not addressing machine learning. The second thing that we do is connect together faculty on campus from different departments. We don't have an education school here at MIT. And as a result, somebody in economics, for instance, may not be as tightly connected as they could be and would like to be as somebody who's in brain and cognitive sciences. So we play that connecting role. And then the third thing, which really is the most interesting to me, is the sharing side of things. If the findings of learning science don't make it out to practitioners, and that practitioner could be a grade school teacher or a college instructor or a workplace trainer, if we can't speak to them in their language and on their timescales, then the research just sits in academic papers gathering dust. The center's done... Um, extensive work in uh, in literacy, and and given what you've told us about the center, that you don't really have a school of education, that seems like an uh, interesting place to conduct literacy assessment. Uh, how do you do it without being an ed school? So one of the faculty members in brain and cognitive sciences, who's also our faculty director of the Integrated Learning Initiative, is uh, an expert in brain scanning and brain science and understanding what's going on inside the brain of a learner. Sometimes that may be a learner who's functioning well, and other times it may be a learner who's struggling. And he spent a lot of his effort thinking about uh, younger kids uh, often with uh, ADHD or attention deficit or autism or dyslexia. And through him, representing our side of the house, uh, MIT, we're doing a joint Chan Zuckerberg-funded project with the Harvard Grad School of Ed and bringing to bear the resources and expertise that Harvard has in the area of early literacy and the expertise that, that we have here. Uh, so as it happens, it's a great tie-in to my work back in the corporate world where probably more than any other area, I spent time managing products that were addressing early literacy challenges for grade school kids. So connecting the dots of, of all three of the things that you work on, um, I was at a advisory board meeting for the Digital Promise Learner Positioning System, a, a new rather visual distillation of uh, research, both from, from your center and from Harvard. Uh, so a great example of a you know, a translation and application uh, opportunity that started with um, probably brain scans uh, that your team has conducted. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly fair to say that MIT's share of the research that's been done in the learning space is a drop in the bucket. Uh, institutions all over in the country and the world, I'm not incredibly familiar with it, but the digital promise uh, inventory, if you will, of, of learning science as it applies to pre-K-12, I think it's in excess of something like 100,000 papers. Uh, and it's just a great resource for educators who need to get access to that content, but can't really be experts at it when, 
they've got their day job of working with reasonably large groups of kids in a classroom by themselves. Let's do a quick recap of what we've been learning from uh, the sciences. Maybe we can talk about the learner and then about programs in schools and then more broadly about policy. But uh, How would you describe what we've learned about how learners uh, grow and develop, particularly younger children? Yeah, so it turns out that the, the lessons aren't dramatically different, although certainly there are some developmental differences between birth up through pre-K-12, which is one of the three demographics we focus on, the other two being higher education and workplace learning. Ultimately, it comes down to the way information is transferred from our sensory receptors to our short-term memory to our long-term memory and back. And when you've retained learning, the pathways between particularly short and long-term memory are strong. And what we know about how that works is that we want to space learning out over time. We want to interleave learning such that we're not learning all of something at once and then all of a different thing all at once. And so things that, that allow a learner not only to take in information, but to present information back out, in essence, taking a test of some form is what helps cement learning. And that spacing can vary, but if you're studying for a test a few weeks out or a few months out, or you want to have information uh, that you can use years out, you might want to space out the learning days, weeks, even months. That's what helps make it stick. We, a week ago, posted a blog from Melina Unkeford from uh, UCSF, who's done extensive work in this area and is, is now working with a group of schools um, on on the importance of uh, helping kids access information uh, and and reapply it, that it does seem to um, suggest that it's important to access our long-term memory uh, with some frequency. Uh, I ask for kids to do that in many different settings, and that it it actually reshapes the memory each time we we access it and. Uh, if you will, uh, put it, you know, return it back to our long-term memory. Yeah, I think it's easy to imagine that our memory works the same way a computer memory does, where if it's working well at all, what you store and what you get back is exactly the same thing. That document you created and saved and loaded back up is exactly what you typed. But human memory just doesn't work that way. Uh, memories will change over time. Our sense of what happened in the past will change over time. But if we can reinforce things, particularly things where maybe it's a procedure, maybe it's a piece of knowledge, that is cemented by that ability to sort of stress the system. And I mean mildly stress the system by asking to recall it. Uh, I'm sure you've felt this. If you can explain something to someone else, you feel like you get it. And maybe you help find gaps in your learning because you're trying to explain it. The story you're telling doesn't quite connect and you've got to go back and refresh on a particular area. But ultimately, that's what an authentic assessment would be, is some form of, hey, I'm going to explain it to someone else. Uh, this, I think, points to the importance of deliberate practice. Uh, Gene Kearns, the CAO at Renaissance, uh, just published a book on deliberate practice, and we had him on the podcast a month ago, and we'll link to that in uh, in the show notes. He likes to use the the metaphor of scrimmage, uh, of drill and scrimmage, that uh, th there is some benefit to drill if we're asking 
students to access important information and then apply it. Uh, that gets them ready for for the scrimmage, which is uh, often larger uh, application. So, anything else on that subject of deliberate practice or uh, drill that can be useful? Yeah, I liken it back to the time I spent coaching youth soccer. And between my two sons, I think came close to coaching something like 30 seasons of soccer. It's really the one area where I've had formal training on how to be an instructor. It's a case of knowing your audience. You were instructed, we were instructed not to be talking for more than 30 seconds, if at all possible, to get kids doing practice. And we would scaffold it up from, we're going to be kicking a ball with this part of our foot. Let's practice it with repetition a number of times. Then we do the scrimmage. And by Saturday, we're ready to try in a game with a real competition and, and real stakes, you know, no matter how low stakes it is for the kids, it's, it's high stakes. Um, and and that, that deliberate practice would be better than just tossing a ball out there and having the kids go at it. Then they'd probably be getting mostly exercise, but not so much the uh, development as a soccer player. Let's move up to, to program and school implications. What, what do you think we've learned there? Well, it's a big topic to sort of pull the, the lid off. But if we think about what it takes to be successful in work and in life, in theory, our formal education ought to be aiming at those things. And so today, we don't exactly have that at the K-12 level or the higher ed level. There are certainly exceptions. But when we sort of pigeonhole things into courses. I've got a math class. I've got a social studies class. We're not really re representing the, the connected world that we're going to go out and face, whether it's buying an apartment or figuring out how to pay our taxes or accomplishing a project at work. Um, so if, if I got to be the, the decider, I'd think about the skills that make people successful in work and in life. And I'd start to back those down and use those to create learning objectives, to create assessments, and ultimately to create learning experiences that I'd deploy. And again, that can be at the, the college level or the, the department level or the, the class level, or maybe just a piece of a class like a lab or a discussion group. It's, um, I guess, not surprising that the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative would advocate for some integrated learning. <laughs> uh, uh, well deserved. And at the policy level, what, what do you think states can do to help kids have more of these experiences? You know, it's tough. If you think about the control that local school boards and local school superintendents have, the state doesn't have a lot of sway. Certainly, the funding that comes in from the state, uh, the regulations that the state can put in place, um, they have some impact. But in the same way that it's hard for a principal to really control what a teacher does in the classroom, there's uh, a, a loosely uh, hierarchical system. The same is true of colleges and who governs what happens at a college level and how a college, for instance, governs or might attempt to govern what a particular faculty member is teaching. I think it's definitely carrot and not stick territory. I think finding success cases and showing how they work without trying to back an instructor, whether it's high school or college, into a corner and suggesting that their practice is bad, but, but rather helping them see the next thing that they can add to their repertoire. 
But again, it's not command and control the way you know the commander in chief of the army or a general or a captain can control, relatively speaking, the the people that uh, that are reporting to him or her. It it certainly seems since uh, since we're all connected now, and that uh, including students having much better access. Uh, that students, parents, and teachers um, are finding interesting new resources. Um, it, it, it seems that that uh, makes command and control leadership even less relevant than the new challenges to create generative systems that um, that take advantage of learning um, bottom up and and outside in. Yeah, if we think about a traditional four-year degree, and certainly respect that not everybody does that today, but that four-year degree is such a huge monolithic chunk of time. Um, and it's not clear necessarily, and, and I think this is something that students and families are starting to see and workplaces are starting to see, which kind of hits the, the college experience, two-year, four-year graduate, uh, hits it pretty directly, is that there are there's more transparency and understanding of of what can go on and it's just leading to more choices whether those are experiences that are alternative to colleges or colleges that are fairly significantly disrupting the way they've always done things uh, so let's uh, spend a couple minutes talking about higher education uh, some would argue that there's a, a a reduced return on higher education is that true and and to the extent it is what's causing it I think it's early innings. Uh, MIT and the MITx courses, which live on the edX platform, uh, have never been for degree. So it's open to the outside world. You can earn a certificate, but you're not getting MIT credit for that. Well, that's starting to change now. We have a MicroMasters set of courses. And with those MicroMasters courses, somebody who passes them and passes them well can apply to MIT and finish maybe a second semester on campus and earn an MIT degree where their first semester was off campus in a virtual way. Arizona State University now, I think, I don't know if they're delivering it yet or shortly will be delivering a freshman year that you can take online at significantly reduced cost. And as long as your outcomes in that experience are of a certain threshold, you can now come on campus for your sophomore and junior and senior year. For a lot of families, being able to save 25% on the college bill is huge. That makes sense to me, but it, it is interesting to observe the waves of uh, the so-called disruptions. I, I, like many people, were excited about MOOCs when 2012, the year of the MOOC, uh, that's all that we heard about. And, and it is extraordinary that you can have free access to the best profs in the world. Um, and yet that in aggregate has done relatively little um, to to disrupt higher ed. And I was also enthusiastic about many of the uh, boot camps, the code coding boot camps that uh, arose. And, and now some of those are beginning to shut their doors and, um, and merge. So uh, should we be optimistic about these? new forms of learning? Is it just that we're in the early innings or what? Yeah, and those are two examples of existing institutions with long traditional histories disrupting themselves. Uh, and I think we're going to see more of that. We're going to see you know, more places like Northeastern with its co-op program where you're out doing real things for real companies. And um, 
You know, so those those are going to be ways that, in some cases, digital impinges, or in some ways, the way that real world projects impinge and uh, and change that experience. I think that freshman academy you can actually access for free and just pay if you uh, if you want the credit. So it's really kind of a no risk way to go to college uh, and a very inexpensive way to gain uh, college credit. So it, it, it is an example of a, a, a great uh, bargain, at least for the first year of college. Yeah. So uh, Sanjay Sarma, who's an MIT professor and MIT vice president and who heads MIT Open Learning, of which our group is part, he's got a great graphic that shows what you just described. It's basically learn formally and then work. And now in a new future form, much more back and forth between those two modes. Uh, and it just, you know, he, he talks about having membership in a university for your life, not being there for four years. I just posted a Forbes blog about a growing number of companies offering education as an employee benefit, sometimes just an encouragement to continue learning in other cases, much more closely linked to job competencies. Uh, but that that does seem to signal the growth of more work and earn ladders where we're going to see more and more people working and learning. And it, we'll, we'll see less differentiation of you learn for the first 21 years of your life and then you work for the next 40 years. Uh, this seems to be a signal that this is going to be uh, much more simultaneity uh, of working and learning. Yeah, I think, and I would apply this same thinking to higher ed as well, make things project-based. Everything in life is a project. Again, figuring out your taxes or planning your vacation or taking care of something at work. I view the core skills there as being creative thinking, problem-solving, communication, collaboration, the so-called 21st century skills, but personal traits that can be developed like grit and growth mindset, those are the things that I would make at the core of my educational experience, again, college or K-12. And it's going to mean a shift, right? We have math teachers and science teachers, and we need to do away with that and have more cross-disciplinary stuff like High Tech High out in San Diego, where we're doing projects and we're bringing in the knowledge or the skill as it's relevant for the project. And that way, students see that it's relevant, right? I mean, it's hard to spend time and energy learning something when you don't see its relevance. If it's part of a project, I think that's much clearer. And I, I guess in that spirit, uh, we've launched a, a new effort to try to reconceptualize the high school credential. Of, if we did have better high school diplomas, what, what do you think they would signify? How, how would they be earned and what? What kinds of experiences might go into them? How, how might those better communicate uh, a young person's capability? So a model that I like, and I'm not super familiar with it, but the Fox School of Business at Temple, you get your transcript of courses, but you also get a transcript of competencies. And so let's say you take a course on microeconomics and you learn something about four topics, but you're also learning about those four topics. Maybe it's negotiation or maybe it's leadership. You're learning about those in other courses. And at the end, you and a potential employer can look and see what are the competencies that you mastered during that time. You can certainly learn writing in a science class where you've got to write up the results of a lab. 
I should show in my work output, in my portfolio, that I've got writing capability that's been expressed in science. Or alternately, uh, maybe in math class, uh, I'm, I'm applying something from social studies. And so if we can more granularize the competencies or skills or learning objectives that we want and report on those, that's a list of what I can do, not a list of seats that I've sat in. Our, we've historically described a, a high school diploma as a sequence of discipline-based courses. How might we express what a, a learner uh, should know and be able to do? Right. And, and maybe the courses still exist, right? They're not to say there's not value, right? There are real logistical challenges of bringing learners and instruction together. If we decide that 10-minute blocks are great and we need to space them out every two hours, well, that's a big ask to get an instructor to show up for 10 minutes and leave and students to show up for 10 minutes and leave and then reconvene. So we may need still 60 and 90-minute blocks, but how we think about spacing out the activities within those blocks could change. And those may be those micro-credentials, those badges, those endorsements of what I've learned, and they stack up in a different way in the course, which still, again, can exist. Uh, Jeff, any, anything new on the roadmap for the center? So we're doing a couple things. One uh, that's been a lot of fun, in fact, I'm heading off on Sunday to do, is at learning conferences or other conferences, we'll run experiments to test out something in the learning field. We're going to be at the Canadian Red Cross in Niagara next week, looking at two modes of learning. And I can't say what they are in case any CRC members are, uh, are, are listeners to your podcast, but we'll experiment with something like 80 to 100 of the participants of the conference on site and then report out findings. So that's one thing that's a lot of fun to do. It's rolling up our sleeves. Uh, this is always in concert with a principal investigator. So while I'm staff here, uh, these are postdoctoral students or in some cases faculty who work with us or whom I work with. Uh, a second thing that's, that's uh, got a lot of traction and, and we're just in the early stages is thinking about some sort of digital system where practitioners can go and find out relevant learning science and easily apply it to their day-to-day -day work. It doesn't mean reading academic papers and it doesn't mean being an expert on the learning science. It's bullet lists of things to do with those academic journals as backup if they do want to dig in. That's exciting. Jeff, we appreciate the work of the MIT Integrated Learning Initiative. Thanks for joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you. And if it's not obvious, I could uh, talk about and think about and learn about all of these concepts uh, for far longer than anybody has the patience to listen to. Hey, where can people learn more? So we're at mitili.mit.edu. And from there, you can hit our social media, you can read our news feed, or you can get in touch with us. That's awesome. Thanks, Jeff. A big thanks to Jeff for chatting with Tom. And thanks to the entire team at the MIT ILI Center for your work to improve education. Is there something you've been wanting to learn more about? Send your podcast topics and ideas to editor at gettingsmart.com with podcasts in the subject line, and we'll add them to our list. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.